Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 32 through 39. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Hear now the word of God, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer, and then we'll hear the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you are kind and merciful to us in ways beyond what we could ever ask, imagine, or think. Not only have you given us your son and the gift of salvation, but you have also given us your word, that which is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, that which gives us wisdom and insight, that which conveys unto us your very heart and mind. And so we pray, O Lord, that we would listen attentively, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would plant the the seeds of truth deep within our lives, that you would water it with the outpouring of your spirit, and that you would produce fruit 30, 60, and even a hundredfold unto your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think one of the bluntest prayers in all of the Bible, uh, and perhaps we could say one of the most honest, comes to us from the prophet Habakkuk. Here the prophet was looking out upon the land of Israel, and he recognized that they were a sinful people, but he also understood that God was bringing the Babylonians, uh, a, a pagan Gentile nation, against the Israelites, in judgment against Israel for their sin, for their idolatry, uh, for their rebelliousness. And so the prophet, on the one hand, could understand that God was going to hold the people accountable to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, that he was going to bring the covenant curses upon them for their rebellion. But on the other hand, I think he was quite perplexed that he would do it at the hands of the Babylonians, a pagan, unclean, barbarian people. And he says in, and, uh, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, you who are of pure eyes to, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? God, how on earth can you allow this to happen? How can you allow these wicked, pagan Gentiles not just to simply sweep away the unrighteous, but to take the righteous along with them. How can you allow this to happen? How can this be? And in his mercy and in his grace, God responded 
lovingly to Habakkuk, and he told him in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, on the one hand, this breathes the air of the gospel, and we understand that that is the case. The righteous shall live by his faith. This is the way that Abraham uh, received the gospel promises in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But on the other hand, it may not seem immediately relevant as to why God would say in the midst of the Babylonian invasion of the land with the seemingly, uh, the seemingly as the wicked sweep away the righteous, that he would say the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, of what relevance is the gospel in the face of persecution and suffering? Well, we get an answer to this question, I think, in a number of different places in the scriptures. We get an answer from the Abrahamic narratives. We get an answer from the prophet Habakkuk. We get an answer from the Apostle Paul as he uh, quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans chapter 4 as well as in Galatians chapter 3. And we also get an answer here in Hebrews chapter 10 as the author quotes those words in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And so what we want to recognize this about the nature of the gospel is that the author is pointing to a faith that imparts the forgiveness of sins, the reception of the imputed righteousness of Christ in the present. In other words, there is a sense in which we can say that we Today, at the moment of our profession of faith, we lay hold of the promises of the gospel, the promise of eternal life. We have a hope for tomorrow. And that is one thing that the gospel conveys, which is why uh, the the author of Hebrews says, uh, but my righteous one shall live by faith. There's hope for the future. But on the other hand, it's also a hope that we receive by faith in the gospel of Christ for the present in the midst of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the face of trials. I can state it this way. I think for so many of us, we are content to know that God will save us in the future. We are content to trust him for the future. We know that we have eternal life. It's just that we're not so sure about today. We're not so sure about what he's doing in our lives today. And we're unwilling to trust him in the present as much as we are willing to trust him for the future. And so this, I think, is the crux of what the author of uh, Hebrews is bringing here and why he brings us uh, to the gospel and to the necessity of faith even in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution and trials. And so what we want to do is we want to see what the author has to say first about their past persecutions. We've talked about this uh, throughout uh, our study of the book of Hebrews, but here he makes explicit mention of the reasons as to why they were thinking about abandoning the faith. Secondly, we want to understand the nature of persecution. So often it's the case that we have misguided, misguided notions, not only about persecution, but about sufferings and trials. And then third and finally, we want to see why is it 
that the author here quotes and makes allusion to Hebrews, or sorry, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. So let's give thought first to what he has to say about past persecution, about the things that the recipients of his letter had endured, and that throughout the previous ten and a half chapters, the author has been encouraging the Hebrews uh, to whom he writes not to go back to their former Old Testament ways. Don't abandon Christ. Don't go back to the Old Testament covenant. But what the author has known all along is why his readers were tempted to return to Judaism. And as I've I've explained in previous messages, is that the reason why is that they were suffering for their faith. But it's here that the author makes this explicit in verses 32 and 33 when he says this, but recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. In other words, on the heels of embracing the gospel, the gospel of Christ, the author's recipients were immediately subjected to suffering and to persecution. This is something that I think is somewhat foreign to us. You know, we live in a country where even today there is a relatively acceptable uh, status for the Christian faith. You know, I'm not saying that it's not ridiculed, that it's not persecuted, that it's not, you know, subjected uh, to unfair treatment. I'm not saying that. But even here in this country, because of our history, because of the fact that so many Christians participated in its founding, it's still an acceptable thing. Not so in other cultures. I can remember when I was just uh, finished with college uh, back in the early 90s, I went to Croatia to serve on a missionary evangelistic team where we went in among Bosnian refugees in a Bosnian refugee camp. And as we were serving in this camp, we would go from uh, shelter hut to shelter hut. It was a former Yugoslavian military base where the International Red Cross had set up essentially small dwellings. They looked like tiny houses is what they were, but they were makeshift you know, dwellings. And I could remember we would go knock on the door and they would invite us in and they would offer us some of the few things that they had. And one of those things was Turkish coffee. I don't recommend it. It's thick. It's dark. And I had one of the worst experiences coming off of Turkish coffee because I'd never drank coffee before then. I don't drink it now. It's not my favorite beverage. But to be polite, I'd be like, oh, sure, I'll take some coffee. And so I would sit there and they said, well, hold your coffee cup if if you don't want it to be refilled. So I held it the whole time and they still filled it up. So I was probably having, I don't know, seven, eight, nine cups of coffee a day. I was, it was the worst getting off of caffeine in my life I've ever had. But one of the things that we did is we would sit there holding our Turkish cups of coffee as we would talk to them about Christ and the gospel. And on several occasions, we had uh, these uh, Bosnian refugees, many of whom were Muslim, who made a profession of faith. And we, were, we rejoiced at the fact that they embraced the gospel of Christ. We were over, overjoyed. We were happy. And so on one occasion, there was a young woman who made a profession of faith. We left and we came back the next day, knocked on the door of, of their shelter, and she would not come to the door. And so uh, we went and inquired around, and we finally discovered that the reason that she would not come to the door is her family said, if you actually embrace Christianity, we will disown you. 
And so right there, I mean, immediately on the heels of becoming a Christian, there was instant persecution, instant suffering. And I think this is the type of suffering that these uh, Jews that had embraced the gospel of Christ were enduring. The moment that they became Christians, the moment that they professed their faith in Christ, their family members, their communities, their local synagogues turned on them, turned on them. You know, think, for example, uh, when Jesus healed the man born uh, blind, that the religious leaders immediately began interrogating him and asking him, who healed you? How did this happen? They asked his parents. And at the end uh, of the whole interrogation, it says in John 9, 34, they cast him out, which is essentially, it means that they excommunicated him from the synagogue. You have no place here. You embraced him, therefore you reject us. Because we reject him, we reject you immediately. And so notice here the language that the author uses to describe their experience. Verse 33, that they were exposed to reproach and affliction. They were partners with those so treated. You know, in other words, when you see somebody, uh, you know, rejected from a community... You know, say, for example, that someone who is convicted of a serious and heinous crime, the last thing that you want to do is associate with that person. You don't want to associate with them lest some of their reproach falls upon you. You don't want to have guilt by association. Guilt by association is a powerful and inhibiting force. So Jesus was crucified as a criminal. So why then would uh, these people therefore want to associate with him? Those who associated with Jesus were also likely uh, branded as criminals. You know, what was it that Paul, uh, what was his experience? 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Paul was willing to associate with Christ. Christ was branded a criminal. Paul was branded a criminal. And so anybody who consorted with Christ or his disciples might easily be ashamed and therefore shun the persecution. But not so with the recipients of this letter. They were willing to suffer. They were exposed to reproach. They were partners with those who were so treated. This might be a reference even to the apostles themselves. Someone like Paul who was imprisoned and they were willing to visit him in prison, willing to minister to him, willing to suffer with him. And so he rehearses their past persecution. But secondly, it's so important for us to understand the nature of this persecution. I think our immediate knee-jerk reaction can be one of perplexity. What on earth is going on? If I have embraced the truth, why am I suffering? Isn't my suffering a sure sign that I'm on the wrong path? You know, if you opened the door, if you were in a house and you opened a door and walked in and immediately were engulfed in flames and heat, you would 
quickly do a U-turn and run the opposite direction. And so God here opens the door of faith to the recipients. They enter the room of the Christian life and all of a sudden it's ablaze with persecution. And so naturally they have the thought, I need to turn around and go back. I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't need this. Who of us wants to suffer? But this is where both they and we need to understand the nature of the persecution. Now, the author here doesn't come out and explicitly state it, but he uses, I think, some discrete phrases that helps us to understand the nature of the persecution that they, are, that they were suffering. And it's so, so, so important. When he says there in verse 33 that they were exposed to reproach. This is the same exact language that the Gospel of John uses to describe what Christ suffered. And it's, a, it's language that you find in the Psalms, such as in Psalm 69.9. John 2.17, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Do you see the, the trend here? The people reproached God. So naturally, Jesus quotes Psalm 69.9 to say, just as they have reproached you, they have reproached me. Because I have spoken the truth, your truth, O God, they have reproached me. This, in fact, in Psalm 69, verse 9, is the same passage to which Paul appeals when he speaks of Jesus in Romans 15, 13. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, what the author is saying is they're reproaching you, but they are reproaching Christ in you. You're not suffering merely for the sake of suffering. You are suffering because Christ is in you. As they reproach God the Father, so they reproach God the Son. As they reproach God the Son, so they will reproach anyone who follows him. Anyone who follows him. Verse 34, notice that he says this, For you had compassion on those in prison. Might it have been Paul? We don't know for sure. But certainly we know that when Paul was Saul the Pharisee, that he persecuted Christians to the point of death and even imprisoning men and women. And yet we shouldn't just simply see that the, the, the recipients of this letter were being altruistic, that they were doing their civic duty by visiting people in prison, but rather he's showing them, the author is showing them once again that it's Christ in them that is at work. For you had compassion on those in prison. Do you remember the teaching of Christ about visiting those who were in prison? Matthew 25, verses 35 and following, for I was hungry and you gave me food. For I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And Jesus says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry 
and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked or and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and, or in prison or, in visit, or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as when you did it to the least one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So what the author is saying is he's saying, look, the reason that you are being reproached is because Christ is in you. And the reason that you are being reproached and you are suffering is because you are visiting Christians who are in prison. But when you visit and show them kindness to the least one of these Christ's brothers, you are ministering unto Christ himself. Moreover, it is Christ in you and the compassion of Christ that is in you that is willing to go into the midst of the flames of persecution in order to minister to those who are suffering. But notice what else and who else is at work here in verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I don't know how many of us would be willing to joyfully, uh, you know, accept the plundering of our property. But the fact that they responded with joy in the face of adversity is evidence that Christ through his spirit was at work in them. Because here the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control was at work in them in the midst and in the face of this suffering. When the disciples, for example, were dragged before the ruling council and beaten for their faith in Christ, how did they respond? How many of us would respond in this way had we been beaten for our testimony to the gospel? Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer uh, dishonor for the name. It's only Christ in us that enables us by the Holy Spirit to rejoice in suffering for the sake of Christ. And so the author was reminding them here of two chief points that I think that the moment that the heat and the flame of persecution gets turned up, we are quick to forget. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute those who believe in him. This is exactly what Jesus taught in John fifteen twenty: A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so I think the author, on the one hand, is saying, hey, don't be surprised at this. If they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute you. But on the other hand, the author was telling them that their suffering wasn't unexpected or a deviation from God's sovereign plan, but rather a a central part of it. You know, this is why Paul, for example, when he writes to the Galatians, he says in chapter 4, verse 19, My little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. In other words, what he's saying here. Is he saying that this suffering, this persecution, is not at all out of God's control? But believe it or not, it's the very means by which God in Christ, through the Spirit, is making you more like Christ. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. You know, suffering, therefore, consists in many things it's denying ourselves when tempted by sin. It's exalting Christ rather than ourselves. It's associating with the people of God rather than the the, the people of the world. And yes, sometimes it may even mean enduring persecution for the sake 
of the name of Christ. But after all, this is ultimately the very thing to which Christ calls us. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so what we have to recognize is that what the author is saying is a vital truth, but it is a difficult one, I think, to embrace. It's difficult because few of us actually really want to suffer. You know, we don't want pain. Uh, you know, I can remember my brother and I, we would, uh, we would be, you know, we, when we were in high school, we, we would go to exercise in the gym sometimes. And I would say, come on, man, you can lift more. You know, you can, you can pick up heavier weights. You can exercise longer. You can run farther. And I'd say, remember, no pain, no gain. And he said, no, no, that's not my motto. I said, well, what's your motto? No pain, no pain. That's, that, was, that was his motto. And uh, as funny as that is, I think, as I think about that over the years, I also think it's so true about the Christian life. Oh, Lord, sanctify me. But no pain, no pain. You know, make it painless. You know, it's like whenever I go to the doctor and I have to get some sort of shot or, you know, vaccination or what have you, uh, you know, like the other day I had to go get my shingles vaccination and I'm sitting there and, and the pharmacist came around and gave me my shot. And I felt like saying, you don't do this very often, do you? Because that hurt. I, I, you know, and then sometimes I've gone and you get this, a shot and you're like, oh, was it, is it over? <laughs> I didn't even feel it. We want sanctification without pain. And on the one hand, totally understandable. But on the other hand, what God says is, no, it, it, it calls for taking up our crosses. And that, at times, can be mild suffering to very intense suffering. But it's our divine vocation. It's our holy calling. But it is not a calling to which uh, there is no goal or purpose. This is why the author says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is a truth that even the, the, the worst of worst atheists can acknowledge it was Friedrich Nietzsche who said, man, the bravest animal and the most prone to suffer does not deny suffering as such. He wills it and even seeks it out, provided he is shown a meaning for it, a purpose for suffering. He says, even, you know, even somebody like Nietzsche recognizes that we'll endure suffering if we recognize that there's a purpose for it. If we recognize that there's a purpose for it. You know, I can remember talking with a young man who was going through some intense military training where part of the things that they would do is immerse them in the cold ocean water uh, for as much as 20 to 30 minutes at a time. And part of it was a weeding out process. They wanted to see, do you have the, do you have the endurance to endure the suffering? But on the other hand, in some of the research that I've done, I found out that there's actually a purpose behind immersing them in the cold ocean water. And I told him this on the phone at one point. I said, they're not just subjecting you to torture. Think of it as to ask yourself, why does the professional football player immerse himself in an ice bath after practice? It's for muscle recovery. That's one of the purposes that they're doing. They immerse you in the cold water. It's for actual muscle recovery. There's a purpose to it. And if you can remember that if there's always some sort of purpose, then maybe you can get through the training. He did. He did get through the training. But this is the point that the author is making here. There's a purpose 
to this suffering. It's not aimless. It's not meaningless. It's not just for the sake of suffering. It is for the reward. It is for conformity unto Christ. It's the blessings of eternal life. And this is why, thirdly and finally, the author points them to the hope and the faith uh, and faith of the gospel. You know, is that the important point in being able to see the goal is knowing how to get there. It was uh, St. Augustine in his famous work, The City of God, who said that the pagan philosophers, in a sense, these unbelieving philosophers, whether it's Plato or Aristotle or, or a score of others, they could see, in a sense, they could see that God existed. There's a sense in which they could see the blessings of eternal life as if it were a great celestial city perched atop a mountain, and they could see its light, they could see its brilliance, but they stood at a great distance from it. They stood on another hill, looking at it from afar and between them and their place and the celestial city, he says there was a great valley engulfed in darkness and in fog and that they could descend into the valley, but they could never find their way to make their way through the darkness, through the fog to be able to get to that city. Because the only way to get to that city, says Augustine, is by faith in Christ, which is the gift of God. No amount of human reasoning can get them there because of their sin-fallen nature. Well, the author didn't want his recipients to forget how they could arrive at their heavenly goal. And this is why the author, you know, alludes to these words of Habakkuk 2.4 in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And there's a very important reason as to why he alludes to this passage. You see, when the prophet saw all the impending destruction at the hands of the Gentile barbarians and he called him to faith in the gospel, he pointed him to the faith of Abraham. Why does he point him to the faith of Abraham? Think about the promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you a son from your own body. And what does Abraham see? He sees nothing. He sees the withered bodies of himself and his wife. He doesn't see fertility. He doesn't see ability. He sees withered bodies to the point where the Apostle Paul says, being virtually as good as dead. He sees an absence. And yet in the presence of uh, in the absence of what would otherwise be something that would lead them to believe that God indeed would fulfill his promises, he had faith in the promise. Even though his body was withered and, and virtually as dead, he trusted in the promises of God. This is why the prophet Habakkuk has the same promise given to him. The righteous shall live by his faith. He looks out upon the desolation of the land as the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to sweep away uh, the, the righteous with the wicked as they're going to destroy everything. And it seems as if God is not there. It seems as if he has forgotten his promises. And yet God tells the prophet, the righteous shall live by his faith. The same faith that looked out upon withered bodies but nevertheless believed is the same faith that looks out upon the Babylonian invasion as if it seems as if God has forgotten them and still believes. This is the faith to which the author of Hebrews was calling his recipients. 
says, you see persecution, you see trials, you see suffering, you think God has forgotten. Have the faith of Abraham, who looked out upon his withered body, but nevertheless believed. Have the faith of Habakkuk, who looked out upon the land as the Babylonians were invading, and it seemed as if God had forgotten them, and yet he believed. Look out upon your own suffering, your own persecution, and don't think that God has forgotten you, but nevertheless believe. Believe. And so the author therefore promises them that God would deliver them from their persecution as well as even hold their persecutors accountable. Verses 36 and 37. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. God will make things right. He will hold your persecutors accountable. He will deliver you. And so this is why he points to the faith of Abraham, to the faith of Habakkuk, and said this is the same type of faith that you need to have. But the author also ensured them of another important point, verses 38 and 39, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So he warns them, but notice how he finishes. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, I know you. I know Christ is in you. I know he will see you through. He is faithful to the end. In other words, Christ is the only sure hope of their salvation. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in question 127 it says, talking about the ending of the Lord's Prayer, it says, but we, by, by ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, O Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. This is what the author is calling them to. Hold fast to Christ, for he will deliver you. He has not forgotten you. He is there in your midst. He is working in you. Uh, He is loving you. He He is giving you his presence through his word and through the spirit. So, beloved, in the face of trial, suffering, or even persecution, our prayer should be for a greater faith that the fires of suffering would not be that which burns us to ash, but rather we should recognize that it's the smelter's fire that purifies, cleanses us, and makes our faith in Christ stronger. In the words of the hymn, My faith looks up to thee while life's dark maze I tread and griefs around me spread. Be thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to day. Wipe sorrow's tears away, nor let me ever stray from thee aside. But we should also pray that in the midst of our trials, that Christ through the Spirit would be at work in us, and that our hands would be his hands, our feet would be his feet, that when the reproaches of Christ fall upon us, that we would rejoice knowing that we were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name, that we would willingly associate with those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, even if it means loss of reputation. 
that if we suffer loss for the sake of Christ, such as the plundering of our property, as is the case here, that we would joyfully surrender all, knowing that Christ is conforming us more and more to his image, not that he is taking things away from us when we suffer such loss, but rather that he is drawing us closer to himself, showing us what is truly important and showing us what we do not need. Again, in the words of another hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. May it be so, and may may it ever be said of us, that Christ would give us great faith in the face of suffering and persecution. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we are so forgetful. The moment that suffering increases, or even persecution, we think that you have forgotten your promises. Oh, Father, our faith is so weak. When we encounter struggles, we think that you are not sustaining us, or that You are somehow punishing us. Oh, Father, our memories are so short-sighted and that we fail to remember that in the face of sufferings that Christ has told us that we will suffer. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our lack of courage and faith, for in the face of such things, so often we begin looking for the door, clambering for a way out. We pray, O Father, that you would forgive us of our sins, forgive us for our short memories, our weak faith, our short-sightedness, for thinking that you have forgotten your promises. We pray, O Lord, that in so doing you would strengthen our faith, that we would remember that you always have us right where you want us, that we would pray for us to decrease and Christ to increase, O Lord, that in so doing, you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would strengthen us and comfort us, even in the face of difficulties. We pray, O Lord, that should you ever call upon us to suffer for our faith, that we would do so so willingly, joyfully even, knowing, O Lord, that it is not us that is ultimately being persecuted, but rather it is you and your Son and Spirit, but that to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ is a privilege. Oh Lord, we cannot do this of ourselves. Only you can give this to us as a gift. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us this, a great, strong, and robust faith, that no matter the circumstances, whether in times of plenty or in times of want, we would say with Paul that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and that we would do so to your praise and glory. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.